0: If you have your Bibles, please open them now to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Last week for for Easter morning, we looked at, we studied, and we celebrated the first Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, both in preparation for the tenth and final plague. Today, we see the tenth and final plague finally come about, and we see the response of Pharaoh... To finally release Israel from slavery. What we see here is is that the Lord our God is attentive to our need and that he fights for our rescue. Let's begin by reading in verse 29 of Exodus chapter 12. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock with both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, have have you ever been to a church Easter egg hunt? If you have been, you know how serious these events can be. Right? Some of these Easter egg hunts at churches have hundreds of people and thousands of eggs. It's, it's like war. Right? The parents, I mean the children, get really excited and go crazy. People running all over the place, picking up eggs by the handful, sweeping in and grabbing eggs from other people, stuffing their bags full. I mean, what, what shouts resurrection, hope, and gospel love more than just running around and grabbing things for yourselves? There's like zero gospel message in it, but it's fun, and so we like to make memories, and so I guess it's good. But I remember one year when my little daughter was scared by the size of the crowd and the intensity of the event, and so when they shouted, go, she was paralyzed. She did not know what to do or where to go. She just stood there with her empty basket. She knew what she wanted, but she didn't get, She couldn't get it herself. But I'll never forget how she stood there, fearful, and then she turned, looked over her shoulder at me to see if I was with her. And when she saw that I was, she began to move forward. She looked back and she saw her dad watching carefully over her, and it gave her the ability to move And then I actually went with her and I I picked up a few of the eggs and put them in her basket. I tripped a few other dads and pushed over a few other children along the way as well. And, And by the end of the day, she had a pretty good plunder of eggs to show for it. But she needed to know that her father was with her. Folks, this is so much like us and our need for God's attentive and fatherly care. Because how how paralyzed we can feel in this chaotic and sin-filled world. How, How many enemies can come against us from without and even from within. And how overwhelming it would be if not for our God who carefully and lovingly watches over us and guides us. Church family, this is what we see in this text. Our God, Yahweh, the I Am, the self-existent one, verse 42 says, watches over His people and guides them towards His glorious redemption. Why? Because in His great love, He is attentive to our need and He fights for our rescue. That's the main idea for our sermon this morning. The Lord is attentive to your need and fights for your rescue. We have three points. Number one, he strikes down our enemies. Number two, he plunders their riches. And number three, he watches over rescue And friends, all of these are taken directly out of the text this morning. This is God's word for us. This is not just a, a pep talk from someone on stage this morning. This is God's holy and authoritative word. And friend, it is written to you this morning to encourage and strengthen your soul. And so let's begin with the first point. Point number one, he strikes down your enemies. Look at the text. Look at verses 29 to 32. Look, look at how absolutely decisive God's power is over the enemy. For, first of all, in this final plague, notice that, that there are no agents that God uses to bring about the final plague. He, he doesn't even use Moses like he did before. There's no dust that he throws up in the air like he did before for some of the other plagues. No, this final judgment comes from the direct hand of God himself. Why? Because he is fighting for his people. He's, he's taking judgment on our enemies. So second of all, look at how complete the defeat is. Right? This 30, verse 30 says that there were no Egyptian houses left without death within them. Third, look at how, how desperate our enemies become. Even though Pharaoh, back in chapter 10, had told Moses never to appear before him again or else he would kill Moses. Now, in his desperation, he calls Moses to himself and he calls him in the middle of the night. He can't even wait till morning. That's how desperate he is. And he says, get out, Moses. Take your people and leave. He asks for a blessing, but that's not because he is sincere in his humility. He's just unbelievably desperate in this moment. Listen, The final plague from God against Egypt was the final blow. The defeat was clear and decisive. And friends, this should encourage us this morning in a particular way. Because this historic event is written not just to record what happened in Egypt, but rather to to demonstrate for us today what God can do in our lives. Right? In the Bible, Egypt becomes more than just the land that the Israelite people were enslaved in for 400 years. The, the reason why the book of Exodus and the Exodus from Egypt is so paradigmatic in our Bibles is because we are not supposed to only see Egypt as a, as a physical place. No, we are supposed to see it as a symbol of our greatest spiritual enemy. Pharaoh, as evil as he is, is a small picture of a far greater enemy in our lives. Our enemy is more cruel than this Pharaoh. Our enemy is more ruthless than this Pharaoh. Our enemy is more of a tyrant than this Pharaoh. Biblically speaking, the the Pharaoh that we need ultimate deliverance from, friends, it's our own sinful hearts. And I want to focus here this morning because, because even as we get ready to to loudly celebrate the deliverance of God's people from Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea over the next couple of weeks, even as we get ready to celebrate that, we must see how this glorious deliverance is not just supposed to depict God helping you to deal with enemies outside of yourself. It's not just His ability to help you to deal with your angry boss or your grumpy neighbor or your abusive family member. No, this great and glorious deliverance is supposed to remind us of what God wants to do right here, right in our own hearts. And, friends, this is not just me over spiritualizing this or, or choosing to use Egypt as a metaphor for whatever I want. No, God's Word shows us this. In, the, in God's Word, Egypt is clearly the, the greatest physical picture of slavery in our Bibles. That's true. But when we get into the prophets and then into the New Testament, we see references to bondage and to slavery, and we see them in reference not to enemies outside of us, but to our own sinful hearts. Think about the prophet Jeremiah and how he said that the heart is deceitful above all things. Think about all the times in the New Testament that the writers use the language of redemption or to be redeemed. Those are slavery terms. Those are... Terms having to do with being released from bondage. Think about Romans chapter 6 to 8. Paul the Apostle talked extensively about the, the slavery and the bondage of sin. He says that sin apart from Christ has dominion over us. He says that we are enslaved to sin. That we are slaves of unrighteousness. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the the context of of fighting sinful tendencies and the, the immorality of our own heart, Paul says, let us celebrate the Passover lamb, meaning Jesus, but intentionally connecting him back to the glorious exodus that happened at the Passover. Church, this is biblical truth. Apart from God's grace, our hearts are enslaved to sin. And even with God's grace, as we we read earlier in our statement of faith, even as Christians, we know that sin is always trying to enslave us. Idolatry, false worship is a reality in our life as much as it was for them in Egypt. Think about how Yahweh toppled all the gods of Egypt, one after another. He, He has dismantled the idolatry of Egypt. But now, friends, think about the idolatry of our own hearts. Do you know this? Do you you know that idolatry is as common as it has ever been? Even within the church today. Because our hearts are sinful and they choose to worship things that are not God. John Calvin, the the 15th century reformer, said that our hearts are a perpetual idol factory. Our hearts mass produce idols to worship on a daily basis our hearts are constantly looking for secondary things to put our hope and our trust in things that are not God Christian think about the enemies of sin in your own life the the idols that your sinful heart wants to bow down to and worship how about the idol of appearance do you worship the approval of other people Do you make decisions financially, relationally, even even mentally, based on how people will view you or how you appear to them? Have have you made unwise financial decisions because you crave the approval and the acceptance of others? Has, Has appearance before others become an idol that you worship, something that you have given more energy and time and money to than even God himself? Or how about the idol of comfort? Do you worship the idol of ease and comfort? If something is too difficult for you, do you quickly find an excuse to, to prioritize self-care in that moment? Now listen, self-care is not bad. We, we need to value self-care. God wants us to care for our mental health, our emotional health, our physical needs. Absolutely, those are good, good things. But have there been times when you have ignored God's voice calling you to do something for Him because you just didn't want to make yourself uncomfortable? could be anything. We can worship the God or the idol of comfort by by not doing devotions in the morning because we convince ourselves that we need more sleep and we'll do them at night, but night after night we decide we need some downtime with Netflix. Or do you worship the idol of comfort by not serving other people the way that you know that God is calling you to? People in your fellowship group or or by not joining a ministry team because it feels like it's encroaching on your space and your time and, and your freedoms and you need some me time. Again, it's not bad to prioritize self to some degree, but we must be careful as to what is sitting on the throne of our lives. Or how about the idol of control and respect? Husbands, if you feel disrespected by your family even a little bit, does that make you angry? Do do you lash out in that moment? Do you make them feel sorry for what they said or did? Do you worship the God of respect and control and get angry when you don't get what you want? Or, Or how about the God of sex? Friend, have you worshipped the God of sexual pleasure more than Yahweh? Have you bowed down and worshipped the God of sexual fantasy, sexual expression, sexual exploration, sexual satisfaction? Have you stopped guarding your mind from these thoughts? Have you given yourself over to these desires? Have you looked at things? Have you acted on your desires? Have you made out with people in ways that no one else is aware about? Friends, our hearts are an idol factory, aren't they? There are so many things that we put our trust in that simply are not God. So many things that we worship and that, we, that hold us in bondage. Listen, the, the God of appearance, it will crush your soul. The God of comfort and, and respect, it will steal your joy. If you, if you worship the God of control and respect, you, your anger will enslave you and break everything in your life. If you bow down to the God of sexual pleasure, you will find your life worse off than the Israelites stuck in Egypt. It will steal your joy. It will steal your peace. It will. But listen, here's the greatest news ever. Our God is ready to strike down our enemies. That's what he shows through this final plague. He's not willing to allow his people to just languish in bondage before any enemy. Whether whether it be the bondage of Pharaoh or the bondage of sexual addiction or the bondage of your own sinful pride. Friends, as we read about God striking down Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians, you and I as Christians, we're supposed to remember how he has done this for us in his son Christ through the gospel. His grace has has broken the power of sin in our lives. Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. You're no longer in bondage to your flesh. Rather, you are a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, indwelling sin remains. There are remnants of it in our soul, but God has destroyed its ultimate hold on your life. He's given you a new heart with new affections and new desires. And so listen, Christian, you can flee from the Egypts in your life. You can run from the pharaohs which want to have control over you. The doorway is open through Jesus. The chains have been broken. You you can now joyfully pursue your life in Him. Through the gospel, God has defeated sin's ultimate hold on you and He is now going to equip you to be killing sin in your life. And so you can come to your fellowship group leader or to a friend in the church or to a pastor or to someone else, to your spouse, and confess your sin and acknowledge your weakness and how you still feel the weight of sin in your life. And you can ask for help and accountability. You can do that because God has broken the chains and the power of sin. He strikes down our enemies. This is who our God is. And not only that, but He also plunders our enemies' riches, which is our second point. He he plunders their riches. Look at verse 33. Verse 33, it says that the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of that place. And so along with Pharaoh, the, the people of Egypt, they do not want to mess with Yahweh a moment longer. They say, get out or else we will all be dead. But then look at verse 35. It says, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So the Israelites asked for silver and gold, and the Egyptian people, in their desperation to say yes take it, take whatever you want, just get out of our land already. But listen, we need to notice here that what happens in this is more than just the Egyptians being duped by the Israelites in the midst of their desperation. No, it's actually much more than that. And we know it's more than that because God said that this exact thing would happen. Back in chapter 11 verse 2, God instructed them to do this very thing. Back in chapter 3, verse 22, God said that it would happen. And listen, even before that, all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, when God was making a covenant with Abraham, more than 400 years before this moment in Exodus chapter 12, God spoke to Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, Abraham know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possession. God said that this was going to happen hundreds of years before it actually did. He he knew that this exact thing would happen. He knew that the Israelites would come out, that their enemies would be defeated, and that they would plunder their enemy. And friends, oh, did they plunder the Egyptians. They plundered their livestock. They plundered their gold and silver. Listen, God even plundered Egypt of Egyptians. Look, Look at verse 38 how it says that a mixed multitude also went up with them. So so it's not only ethnic Jews who are leaving Egypt. It seems very clear that some of Pharaoh's own people are going up with them. Maybe it was the magicians who had been convinced that they did not have power like Yahweh. Yahweh. Maybe it was Pharaoh's servants who had watched this battle between Yahweh and their gods for so long and were just finally convinced that Yahweh was the one true God. We don't know exactly who they are, but we know that some of the Egyptians said, I'm going with you. I'm not staying in this place any longer. Church, consider what all of this means for us. Think about how arrogant Pharaoh was. He thought of himself as a God. Pharaoh had a pantheon of gods that he boasted in. But Yahweh has come in and he has not only defeated them, but he is plundering them of everything. He, he has taken the treasures and the values of the enemy and turned them into good and blessing for his people. Think about how happy Satan must have been when Pharaoh was in control or thought that he was in control. Think about how Satan must have thought that he was ultimately defeating God By keeping his people in bondage for 400 years. He must have thought that he had won. But no. Yahweh was present and active the whole time. Yahweh was present. Yahweh was working. Yahweh was in the the process of turning evil into good for his people. And friends, we see this not just for the Israelites thousands of years ago. We see it for all of God's people. This is how our sovereign God works in our lives. He takes what the enemy thinks is only evil and he turns it for our good. I think of Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus says that he, the Son of Man, has come to bind the strong man, to bind Satan in this place and that he will plunder his house. This is how Yahweh works. This is what he does. Think about the cross. Think about how happy Satan must have been when Jesus was hanging on that cross. Think about how Satan must have danced when they laid him in that tomb. Think about how triumphant he must have felt when they rolled that stone in front of the grave. Think about how much he would have thought that he won the war. But then Jesus came running out of the grave. He came running out of the grave. And in running out of that grave, Jesus once again plundered the enemy. He not only defeated him, but he takes the greatest evil that had ever been done, the killing of God's own son. He he takes the enemy's greatest attack and he turns it into the greatest good, life after death. Church, our God not only defeats our enemies, he plunders them of all of their riches. What Satan intends for evil, God works together for your good. Christian, Satan would love to throw darts at you this morning darts of condemnation, darts of doubt, darts of guilt. Satan would love to crush you with fear. He would love to use your own sinfulness and mistakes as a weapon against you, trying to convince you that you're not worthy of calling Jesus your friend. You're not good enough. Satan wants you to run away from Jesus with shame. But Jesus plunders our enemy. He says, guess what, Satan? I came for those who are weak and burdened. He says, guess what, Satan? I came for the broken and discouraged. I came for the sexually immoral teenager and for the angry dad and for the suicidal woman. God takes Satan's greatest weapon, which is our sin and our shame and our many mistakes, and he plunders them by, by canceling the debt that we owe and by not holding them against us any longer. He actually says, Christian, it's your weakness that qualifies you to receive my grace and mercy. So come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And, and the devil and all of his forces, all of his demons, they just have to drop their weapons in despair. Because if they can't hold our sin against us, what other thing can they do to us? God has plundered our enemy church. Listen, there's no accusation that Satan can throw at you today that God does not have grace to cover over and to cancel by his grace and mercy. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you can applaud that. Whatever accusation Satan throws at you, whenever he says, you can't sing these songs with these people, do you remember what you did this past week? Whenever he says, you can't be a part of this church community, you're not good enough, you don't deserve this. Or you don't deserve to live out the the joy and and, and happiness of a forgiven life. You've sinned too much. Whatever accusation he throws, whatever dart he throws, Jesus grabs it mid-air and says, no, I've canceled that for them. My blood has covered that as well. Christian, listen, God has plundered your past sexual sin from the enemy. It's no longer a story of sin and shame. It can be a trophy of God's grace and forgiveness. God has plundered your history of anger and bitterness. There are now opportunities for His grace to shine through your transformed life. Husbands and wives, God, God is going to plunder the 20, 30 year weak marriage and, and endless conflict and all the years of disunity in the home. He's going to plunder it. He's got grace for you. He wants to bring transformation there. No matter how dark your past sins No matter how condemned you feel, no matter how severe it all may be, our God is able, and he will always work it together for our good. Your sorrows, your pain, your regret, your shame, it can be redeemed. He will not leave you on your own. He will carry you forward. That brings us to our third point. Point number three, he watches over our rescue. Church, Easter egg hunts are like war. And my little girl would have lost the war if I had not been watching over her shoulder. But she came home triumphant because I was watching over her. Church, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but there is a lot of war language in this text. To plunder your enemy, that is a military term. The way that Israel is spoken about is in army terms. For instance, when it speaks of 600 men on foot. That's a way of speaking of men of fighting age. When it speaks of all of the host of the Lord going up, in verse 41, that word host, that is a military term. The book of Numbers in our Bible speaks of this moment in Israel's history in this way. It says, on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. Our text today is supposed to be read as a historical account of a triumphant battle for Yahweh and his people. The the Israelite enemies are defeated and the Israelites leave Egypt triumphant. A battle was waged and a battle was won on this night. But friends, consider with me how much the Israelite people did to contribute to this triumph. Consider with me how much they fought the enemy. How many people did they strike down in this battle? Consider with me how much effort they put in to bring about this triumphal exit from Egypt. How much? None at all. They almost did less than my daughter with the Easter egg hunt. They they, they simply followed Yahweh's direction as he led them out of bondage. And that actually is very important. Because God fights for us, but when he fights for us, he calls us to follow him. He leads us and and we follow. We have to turn away from our Egypts. We have to look to Him. That's what trusting in Jesus is. That's what true repentance is. That's what it means to be a Christian. We must follow our Lord. But Christian, we also must remember and we must celebrate the fact that this war is being won not by the strength of the Israelite people, not by us, but by the strength and the power of our God, Yahweh, the I Am, the self-existent One. It, it, it's all the work of Yahweh, our faithful, faithful God. Read, read verses 40 to 42 with me again. It says, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Listen to this. It was a night of watching by the Lord. Those are precious words. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What what a verse. That's God's word to you today. Look at verse 42 again. It was a night of watching by the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, the I Am. He is our God and He watches over us you. He cares for you. He is the God, Psalm 121, who never sleeps nor slumbers. He never grows tired. And what does he do in his wakefulness? He watches over you. He looks at you. He cares for you. He has defeated your greatest enemy through the death and resurrection of his own son. In his sovereignty, he is plundering the devil of all of his ammunition and power against you. In his sovereignty, he is working all things together for good, even the hard things. And he is doing it with a watchful eye on you. He's doing it with attentive care. Gentle love and compassion. Christian, the Lord is attentive to your need and fights for your rescue. In the darkest night of your soul, in the deepest depression that you battle, in the lowest valleys, in the worst circumstances where it feels like God was most absent, when your enemies surround you, when you are particularly mindful of your own sinfulness, when you got angry again, when you did that sin again, when you were selfish again, when you looked at what you shouldn't have looked at again, guess what? Your God is awake and alert and attentive and He is overseeing your rescue. He sees your weakness. Your weakness grieves Him. Your, your sin is hard for Him because he, it is an offense against Him. But listen, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even the valley of our own sinfulness, we will fear no evil, not even death itself. Why? Because He is always with us by our side. Church, cling to these words. It was a night of watching by the Lord. Here's some of the most comforting news. It is the most comforting news in all the world. If you are a Christian, God's Word says that you are hidden in Christ Jesus. It says that when God looks at you, he sees you with his son, hidden with Christ Jesus. And guess what? The the Father will never turn his eyes away from his Son. He turned his eyes away from his Son at one time when he was on the cross in order to punish your sin, which was placed upon his Son. He turned away in that moment. But when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, the Father will never look away from him again. And therefore, he will never look away from you again either. It just won't happen. It can't happen. If you are covered by the blood of the Lamb, then the Father watches over you with delight. He is overseeing your rescue. He is watching you and caring for you and supporting you to your full and eternal rescue. He will not let you go, brother. He will not let you go, sister. You are secure in Him. Indeed, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? He has defeated our enemies. His sovereignty is plundering them of their power. And He is watching carefully over our rescue. Listen to these glorious words from Romans chapter 8. In fact, I'd like to invite the band to come forward. You can stand with me now, everyone. I want to read these words from Romans chapter 8. There's actually a lot of war and military language here as well because through the gospel, God has done an even greater work of redemption than He did for His people in Egypt. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Listen, it's God who justifies Redeemer Fellowship, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For we are sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is watching over us. Our God is attentive to our need and watches over our rescue. Let's worship him now.